Well, uh, this morning we're in the midst of a sermon series in uh, the book of First Samuel. And this is a book about a spiritual awakening. It's a book about spiritual renewal um, in the life of Israel. And um, in First Samuel chapter 4, 5, and 6, we see Israel really blowing it. Last week, uh, Tucker was preaching for us, and we see that the Ark of the Covenant was not in Israel's possession, but was in the, the Philistines' possession. And so we see Israel really blowing it, and where our passage picks up today, that Israel was suffering the consequences of really blowing it for 20 years. And so now um, they are gathering to meet with God. All of Israel gathers together at this place called Mizpah to meet with God. And their enemies, the Philistines, think they are actually staging a revolt, an uprising to rebel against them. And so the Philistines come, they gather to attack Israel. And that is where our passage picks up for us this morning. And I'm reading from uh, 1 Samuel chapter 7. Verses 2 to the end of the chapter. You can follow along on the wall behind me or in your, your own worship guides. Let's give our careful attention to God's word that he has given in love for you to know him. Time went by until 20 years had passed since the ark had been taken to kiriath Jerem. Then the whole house of Israel longed for the Lord. Samuel told them, if you are returning to the Lord with all your heart... Get rid of the foreign gods and the Ashtoreths that are among you. Dedicate yourselves to the Lord and worship only him. Then he will rescue you from the Philistines. And so the Israelites removed the Baals and the Ashtoreths and, and only worshiped the Lord. And Samuel said, gather all Israel at Mizpah and I will pray to the Lord on your behalf. When they gathered at Mizpah, they drew water and poured it out in the Lord's presence. They fasted that day. And there they confessed, we have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the Israelites at Mizpah. When the Philistines heard that the Israelites had gathered at Mizpah, their rulers marched up toward Israel. When the Israelites heard about it, they were afraid because of the Philistines. The Israelites said to Samuel, don't stop crying out to the Lord our God for us so that he will save us from the Philistines. Then Samuel took a young lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. He cried out to the Lord on behalf of Israel, and the Lord answered him. Samuel was offering the burnt offering as the Philistines approached to fight against Israel. The Lord thundered loudly against the Philistines that day and threw them into such confusion that they were defeated by Israel. Then the men of Israel charged out of Mizpah and pursued the Philistines, striking them down all the way to a place called Bethkar. Afterward, Samuel took a stone and set it upright between Mizpah and Shen. He, called, he named it Ebenezer, explaining the Lord has helped us to this point. So the Philistines were subdued and did not invade Israel's territory again. The Lord's hand was against the Philistines all of Samuel's life. The cities from Ekron to Gath, which they had taken from Israel, were restored. Israel even rescued their surrounding territories from Philistine control. There was also peace between, the Israel, between Israel and the Amorites. And Samuel judged Israel throughout his life. Every year he would go on a circuit to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mizpah, and would judge Israel at all these locations. 
Then he would return to Ramah because his home was there. And he judged Israel there. And he built an altar to the Lord there. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us. Father God, we pray that your spirit would be working in our hearts now as we consider your word. That your spirit would be planting your word deep in our hearts so that we would become more like your son Jesus Christ. That we would be transformed and conformed. That you would be helping us to be more like your son. So Father, be with us now as we consider your word. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. Can you think of a time that you really blew it? Can you think of a time that you really blew it? So one time of many that I blew it was when we were moving from Pittsburgh here to Chester County. We sold our our house in Pittsburgh and I was making various trips out this way so that we would move here. I was looking for a new place for us and Jennifer was now going to be working from home. It was the first time that she would be working remotely. And so she needed a home office and she actually only had one thing on her criteria list for us to have. That one thing's air conditioning. So on my final trip out here, I found a great spot in Kennett Square. It was walkable. It was across the street from a park and it had a yard. It was wonderful in a lot of different ways, but it was, it had everything but one thing. It did not have air conditioning. And guess what? I did not even ask. And so we discovered this when we moved in. Jennifer walked in the house, and I was still driving the U-Haul an hour away. You can imagine the conversations that happened afterwards. And to just jump ahead in that story, it, the, home, like, well, the third floor became the home office, and we put an air conditioning unit in the window, and it's the most comfortable room in the entire house. It was great. But here's the question that we're going to be thinking about this morning. What happens when you blow it? What happens when you blow it? As we have said repeatedly this morning that we are sinners. We are weak. If it's not one thing, it's another. That we are here this morning, that we are sinners. That one author, Francis Spufford, in his book, uh, Unapologetic, he defines sin a certain way. And he says that sin is the human propensity to mess everything up. Sin is blowing it. And our story picks up when Israel, just after Israel blew it. In 1 Samuel 4, 5, and 6, that Israel is using this ark, a thing of God, uh, to manipulate God. And here in this passage of of chapter 7, there's this strong contrast. That now Israel is not just using, is no, they are no longer using the ark or the tabernacle or the things of God to manipulate God. They are coming directly to God himself. And so what happened in 1 Samuel 4, when they tried to manipulate God, everything is lost, including that God's glory departs from Israel. That is 1 Samuel 4. And now here in first chapter 7, we see God doing something different. But Israel gathers at Mizpah knowing this in their memory that they are a people who blows it. This is their history. And it's been 20 years that they have been suffering under the consequences of blowing it. 
And so they learned a lesson that you cannot manipulate God. You cannot manipulate God. And so as they gather at Mizpah, the Philistines, their enemies, are expecting a rebellion, an uprising. But actually, Israel is gathering for a revival. And so here's Philistia. They they gather in force. They come out to attack Israel, to put them back in their place once again. And so Israel actually, they, they panic. They are anxious. They are worried. Because their question in their mind is that we have lost battle after battle after battle. And now we're going to be in the fight of our life. And who is going to fight for us? That is what's going on in their mind. But the reality is, Israel has changed. They're no longer using the things of God to manipulate God. They're actually looking to God himself. They're not dabbling in religious magic or anything like that or divination. They are now walking by sheer faith in who God is. And they come to God saying, God, help us. We need you to rescue us. And so the... As we think about God in this passage, the picture of God that we have is that God fights for us even when we blow it. And so what do you do when you blow it? And there, this is a passage that gives us some instruction as what do we, should we do when we blow it. But there's also this wonderful picture of who God is as we consider this. And so there's four things to that should shape our life when we blow it. And so as to begin into the story, as we think about that question, what do you do when you blow it? What's going on here as Israel, just to set the context a bit more, that God's glory had departed from Israel 20 years earlier, and that the ark is exiled into Philistia, and it's been returned. But Israel is actually now showing signs of life. If you look at our passage here, that the whole this is verse 2, the whole house of Israel longed for the Lord. And that this longing is a mourning. It is a lamenting. There is a grief in Israel's hearts about the state of their souls and the condition of their church. And that they are not satisfied with their lives. And here's the thing that's like the first thing to really consider is that there's this holy discontentment. That there is a dissatisfaction with their lives. Graham Tomlin He writes this, dissatisfaction with the way things are, accompanied by a deep instinct that things could be different, are the starting points for anyone who wants to engage with the God of Jesus Christ. So as we think about when we blow it, are we discontent? Are we frustrated? Are we dissatisfied with our lives? That is the starting point. And for Israel, there's grief, there's lament, there's sadness. Is there sadness in our life when we sin? And so here's Israel, they gather in Mizpah. But here's the real question. It's one thing to be discontent with your life, to be frustrated. Oh, how I wish things weren't this way. The real question, and Samuel, the prophet, puts it to them very clearly. Are they returning to God? Are they returning to God? And this is what Samuel is getting at in verse 3. Samuel told them, If you are returning to the Lord with all your hearts, get rid of the foreign gods and the ashtoreths that are among you. Dedicate yourself to the Lord and worship only him. 
And so here we see like some more things about what to do when we blow it. There's confession and there's repentance. And confession is very specifically is where you confess the reality about your life. That you acknowledge something about yourself that you know to be true. And so the plain, the clear teaching of scripture is that we are all sinners. That there is no one who desires God. That if we do not admit that we are sinners, we, just, we lie. We are deceiving ourselves. This was the call to our confession. We need to confess the reality that we are sinners. So it's not just enough to say, I'm frustrated with my life or I'm, I had this dissatisfaction. We need to take the next step and say, I am a sinner. I am a sinner. I, am wrong. I have wronged God. I have rebelled him. I have hurt other people. We need to confess our sins. And the reality of scripture that we see about our hearts is that our hearts are deceitful too. That there are moments in our lives that we will sin intentionally. Like if you lie in your tax forms, that is an intentional lie. But we will also sin by neglect. That there are good things that we overlook, that we do not do. We, this is how deceitful and how sinful our hearts are. That we are sinners. And this is what we need to confess. Confess to God, to ourselves, to others. But there's also another component to this of repentance. Repentance is returning to the Lord. Where you're turning from your, your sinfulness and turning to God. It is a 180 turnaround in your life. But it's not a turnaround from bad behavior to good behavior. It is a turnaround from rebellion against God and returning to a relationship with God. And Samuel makes this clear. If you are returning to God, that is what he's saying. If you are returning to God, put away your idols. And so it's returning, repentance is returning to God and saying, I'm your son, I'm your daughter, I'm your child, and I'm going to live as your child. I'm, I'm returning to you, and I'm yours, and I'm going to put away my idolatry. This is what Samuel clearly says, put away your false gods, put away the asterisks that are among you. And like these gods that Samuel's pointing out, This is the Canaanite fertility religions. It's a fertility cult. And so Samuel, just as Moses and all scripture beforehand, says get rid of your idols. Think about the commandment that there's only one God. Worship God. And so last week, Tucker, as he was preaching for us, he preached on Dagon falling in 1 Samuel 5. But he was specifically touching upon our idolatry. That idolatry, like, frankly, anything can become an idolatry. It could be the eagles. But it also could be work. It could be your spouse. It could be those adorable children that some of you are holding right now. Anything can be an idol. But at the center, like those are just some things, but at the center of even further than that, at the center is actually yourself. That most idols are good things. All the things I just mentioned are good things. And we can take these good things and put them in their, 
in a wrongful place. We can make them more important than how God actually meant them to be. And then our lives are completely disordered. That is a devious, that is a devious trick of the devil. That, and this is our idolatry. And speaking for myself and like to talk about one of my own idols is quite devious. There's, and there's so many different layers to this. It could, be also, it could be helping people and it also could be work. And you know how dangerous that is for a pastor? Like, am I laboring to build Jesus's kingdom or am I laboring to build my own? And then it manifests itself. This idolatry manifests itself in different ways where I can be absent from my wife and my children, where I'm always thinking about work, trying to improve things or, or more. And it's also could be, it could also be hurtful to you in various ways. See, idols, and this is what the devil wants to do, that idols, the devil wants to use these idols to wreck our lives, to wreck our lives. And this is actually why Moses says, put away your idols and return to God because God wants us to thrive and to flourish and to have life with him as we are his sons and daughters, that he wants us to experience that, that wonderful relationship with God. And so when we put these two things together of confession and repentance, confession is naming your sinfulness. To saying, God, I am a sinner, and this is how I have sinned against you. And so repentance is that turnaround where you are rejecting your idolatry and returning to the Lord. And fundamentally, friends, this takes place in your hearts. This takes place in your hearts. That are you returning to the Lord? And so repentance is about honoring the Lord in your heart. And how God has made us, of course, that's going to be seen in our lives. That repentance is going to be seen in very tangible ways in our lives. So, and what Samuel says, if you're going to worship God in your heart, if you're going to be returning to the Lord, you're going to be putting away your idols. And it always begins with confession. And so what does this look like in our lives? What does it look like in your life? Depending on your sin and your heart idolatry, it could look pretty different. But one author, David Pallison is his name, and I'll actually email this out to you later this week. He wrote a chapter in one of his books called X-Ray Questions. And these questions are meant to help you get at your idols within your heart, to help you diagnose what is going on in your heart. Some of these, these questions are simply, what do you daydream about? What do you daydream about? What do you spend your time on? Or what do you spend your money on? What are you afraid of? And then what brings you your greatest pleasure? There's a lot of these types of questions, but these are questions that we need to ask ourselves to diagnose the idolatry in our life that Samuel and that God is calling us to put aside and to actually not just put us, yeah, to completely get rid of them. So once you are able to identify your idols, you're able to put them in their proper place. If it's work, you're able to put the, your work below your parenting, below your marriage, and so forth. And that's going to be seen in tangible ways. It's visible that you put off sin and you actually put on Jesus Christ. But here's something that's also very important to know about repentance and confession. That confessing your sins and repenting of your sins is not the cause 
of God's grace in your life. That is important. If we say that repentance is the cause of God's grace in our life, we actually have moralism. We, we have this idea that our good deeds is actually what earns God's love for us. That's not it whatsoever. That God's grace is at work in our life, and we see the, that God's grace is at work in our life through the re- fact that there is confession and repentance. And so still continuing with this question of what do you do when you blow it, there's, something, there's a, another thing here. That repentance includes a radical dependence on God. And this is what we see in Israel's life. This is the idea of dependence. That in 1 Samuel 4, they're actually depending upon themselves. They're using the things of God to manipulate God to get him to do what they want him to do. But now here, they're actually depending upon God to help them. Verse 8 the Philistines gathered or coming to attack Israel. The Israelites in verse 8 say this. Do not stop crying out to the Lord our God for us so that he will save us from the Philistines. So here's the, the picture. Philistia is coming to attack Israel. There's conflict. There's suffering. There's hardship. All of these things are actually, as James tells us, gifts from the Lord so that we would actually call out to God in desperation. That we would call out to God and say, help me. Help me. So this is where, if you're taking notes, we're thinking about holy dissatisfaction, confession, repentance, and dependence upon God. This is the fourth thing to do when we blow it. That our life as Christians is actually defined by our dependence on God not our independence from God. At the heart, one commentator says this, at the heart of Israel's experience of mercy stands her own helplessness and utter lack of resources. Here is Israel. She has nothing to give to God but their hearts. There is nothing that they can do but cry out to God in prayer that Israel can actually only do nothing. That's actually a lie. They're not doing nothing. They're praying. The only thing that Israel can do is to cry out to, the, to God saying, Lord, help us. And here's this picture of prayer. That prayer is actually a picture where you are acknowledging that you have nothing to give. That you have nothing within yourself to Deliver yourself, but you're actually saying that God can help me. That sometimes our Father actually will put us in a box. He'll put, God will put us in situations where one by one, all the things that we look to for help and comfort are taken away from us so that we are actually defenseless. That we actually have nothing else to rely on. The only, that God does this so that we would actually rely on his mercy alone in our life. And that more and more, we, as God's people, need to walk this path of desperation. That we need to walk this path of dependence. That it is a path of prayer. And once we see this, prayer is not just a picture of Christian spiritual discipline, but prayer is actually seen as our only rational activity 
that God is our hope. Because prayer is calling out to God, saying, God, help us. We need you. We need you to rescue us. So my coach, Elliot, he describes this as being in a room with no way out. That we are, when we are in a hard situation, we're looking for a quick fix. We're looking for a quick answer. We're looking for, for that YouTube tutorial that will tell us how to do things. That is what we're do. That's how we're wired. But God puts us in a room with no way out so that none of those things will work and that the only thing that we can do is pray. And God wants us to depend upon him so that we would pray, that we would say, Lord, help me. Lord, help me change. Lord, help me. Help me amidst my sin. Our, this word help reveals an awareness that we cannot do it, but only God can. And just like Israel, our prayer life is weak. This is what Israel is actually acknowledging. They're coming to Samuel. They're coming to their prophet. They're saying, pray for us. Pray for us. He, and Samuel? He does that. He prays for them. He, this is verse 9. He takes a young lamb. He offers it as a whole burnt offering unto the Lord. He cried out to the Lord on behalf of Israel. And, and the Lord answered him. And right here, friends, we have a picture of, how, of what God is doing in our life. That this is a picture of the, of, a, of the fact that our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, he is doing something for you this very moment. That Jesus Christ is doing something for you, and it's truly amazing. That Jesus Christ is before God right now, and he is praying for you. That Jesus, this is the whole idea of Christ's intercessory prayer, that God is actually fighting for you. He is fighting for his people, and Jesus is fighting for you by praying for you. Two verses that make this, that show how awesome this is. Romans 8, 34. This is this wonderful passage of Romans 8. Uh, Neither life nor death can, nothing can separate me from the love of Christ. But here's 8, 34. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died, but even more, he was raised. And he is at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. Second passage, and this is Luke 22, that here Jesus is talking to the Apostle Peter. He's, he's given him a prophecy. Jesus is telling him, one of his best friends that, Peter, you're going to deny me. You're going to deny me. And this is what Jesus says to Peter. Simon, Simon Peter. Simon, Simon, look out. Satan has asked to sift you out like weeds. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. And so here's a picture that Jesus acknowledges that there's the devil out there and he's roaring, roaming around like a, like a lion and he wants to devour you. And here's Jesus acknowledging that he's praying for Peter and he's praying for us. Here's the creator of the universe. He's praying for you. He sustains. He upholds the universe in the palm of his hands. He's praying for you. He's praying that you would be faithful to him. He's praying that you would be fruitful, that your life would display the fruit of the spirits. That if you look at John 17, that Jesus is praying that we would be one as our heavenly father and the God, the son and God, the Holy Spirit is one. 
And the picture that we have from this passage is that when we blow it, prayer is the only weapon that we have. It is the only weapon that Israel has in the fight of their life against the Philistines. That they are holy, that they are utterly dependent upon God. And the good news, friends, the best news is that God fights for you. So as we've been thinking about holy discontentment, confession, repentance, none of those things actually make God fight for you. God is actually fighting for you and working in your life already. That 2,000 years ago, Jesus died, came, he walked into, walked again. He rode on donkey into Jerusalem. He died upon the cross. He defeated death. He ascended to God. And there's this beautiful hymn that goes like this. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. The great high priest who 